This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused pharmaceutical company. And as a sustainable company accredited with both a B Corp and Benefit Corporation status, Chiesi is making global changes that benefit patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. So glad to be back. Uh, Thanks for all the kind words, allowing me some uh, time and space, start that healing process. You also heard the beginning of that episode We got a new sponsor alert. That's right. And the words of Anthony Hawkins, I finally have a disclosure. Um, I told you all about a year ago that I went from, uh, that I went to part-time, like in the hospital, to try to get this podcast and the education side of things off the ground and have this be kind of the full-time job. And this is the first step in that, right? Having a partnership with a nationally known and recognized company. You may be wondering what will change. From a content perspective, nothing. From a discussion perspective, nothing. From a guest perspective, nothing. From a host perspective, also nothing. I mean, Chiesi understands the great work that all the guests do, um, and they don't tell me what to say, what topics to cover, anything like that. There's strict language to say they can't do that. They just want your help. They just want to help your boy achieve this goal. So um, if you have questions about the partnership, please reach out. I want to be as transparent as possible um, that I love and appreciate the partnership, but this isn't going to influence what we talk about, how we talk about things, etc. So it's going to help achieve short and long-term goals. Very, very excited. If you want more info, dot. Come. This is a rapid reaction episode. An important trial was published. You want to know about it, but maybe haven't had enough time to dive in just yet. So let's start right here. And today's article is the ACORN trial. That's correct. Cefepime versus papyracillin tazobactam in adults hospitalized with an acute infection. Uh, published in October 
2023 in JAMA. I know, not super rapid. Things are getting getting back to normal. We'll get some more true rapid responses. But let's be honest. It's a busy time. There's plenty of us that haven't had a chance to read this yet. So I think there'll still be tons of benefit, lots of things to dive into. Now, this is not an open access article but most institutions have access to JAMA. And very lucky to be joined by two pharmacists to discuss this trial. Michael B. Hall, who if you remember, he's done research in this exact field looking at antibiotic-associated AKI. So he talks to me and joins me for most of the episode. And then we're very lucky to get a cameo guest appearance from Joanna Stallings, one of the authors, talking about this uh, innovative trial design. She highlights that this has actually happened before. This is not the first time. Um, but she talks about all that went into that, considerations, etc. So really, really good episode, and we have delayed it plenty enough already. So I think it's time to get going. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to this recurring guest, Michael B. Hall, one of our guests today. Michael is a clinical pharmacist in the critical care unit in Park West Medical Center in Knoxville, Tennessee. Michael, welcome back. How are you? I was going to wish you a happy new year, but Larry David told me I'm way past the time of that being appropriate. So we'll just uh, kind of skip the new year pleasantries and just ask, how are you, man? Hey, thanks, Nick. Um, I'm doing great. I appreciate the the belated New Year's offer. Um, but yeah, I'm doing well and excited to be back. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, so um, as the listeners know from the intro, uh, a rapid reaction uh, episode two, the ACORN trial. And, and sorry, folks, team, definitely less of a rapid and more of like a jogging, probably a little walking. We're kind of in the back of the marathon uh, pack here, but appreciate your patience because what an awesome study that I'm excited to dive into. And Michael, I think we just have to start with like, how did we even get here? Has the use of cefepime and Papyracil and Tazobactam or Piptazo or Zos or however you want to refer to it. Has it always been this controversial or polarizing? I think that's a great question, a great way to kind of start things off. Um, so I don't think it's, you know, always been that polarizing. I feel like kind of within maybe, I don't know, the past 10 years or so is really where that question has started to kind of bubble up. And it's certainly gained a ton of momentum that's ultimately led to the trial we're going to talk about today. Um, I think antibiotic associated AKI has certainly been a point of um, discussion, thinking of 
you know, vancomycin and aminoglycosides, things like that. But um, like I said, really, I think this combination discussion has really started to, to come to fruition in the past 10 years or so. And it really feels like, you know, there are kind of three different paths you could look at as to how we got here, right? Because not only are we looking at antibiotic-associated AKI, but we're also looking at antibiotic-induced neurotoxicity, right? And then just the pragmatic trial design itself. So one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on is because, you know, if the listeners remember, one of your SACM presentations literally was looking at and trying to answer this exact question. So from an antibiotic-associated AKI perspective, Michael, take us take us a little bit through like the timeline of maybe when we first started it and what kind of, why this is so controversial, why we they needed to create this big study to try to answer this question. Certainly. Um, so I probably can't pin exactly, you know, when some of this stuff started coming into the discussion, but, you know, you had some early um, observational studies that started suggesting or demonstrating that Piperacillin tazobactam in combination with vancomycin um, had an increased risk of acute kidney injury. Um, and the reason that those observational studies were conducted was you had animal model and kind of laboratory cell level data that suggested that Piperacillin and Tazobactam could induce acute kidney injury as well. Um, we knew vancomycin was already a major contributor to um, acute kidney injury, so uh, therefore the combination potentially could have a, have a higher risk. Um, so like I mentioned, most of it has been kind of observational um, retrospective data, so not the most robust data. Um, but you had some early studies that did suggest that there was an increased risk of AKI. Then you had some studies that suggested there was no difference in AKI. Um, so I think these kind of conflicting views is really what has led to this ultimately controversial topic um, that we've had here. And then you have, you know, the move by the the FDA to the uh, warning that was placed that's, you know, saying this combination of Piptazo and Vain can increase risk of AKI, which is a pretty huge move from a, a drug regulatory standpoint. Honestly, it really just led to this huge polarizing movement of you're kind of in one camp or you're in the other. Um, and it had some pretty significant impacts on practice as far as shifts and antibiotic use and things like that um, that were kind of interesting to, to look at. So I think kind of that's a little bit of the history of why we've gotten to this study today. Yeah, the fact that a lot of the findings were either in, not conclusive, right? Like you would have two trials and they would have differing opinions or differing findings. Confounders, they were observational. It felt like whatever someone's opinion was, they'd find a way to either support it or tear down the data that said the other thing. So um, very controversial. And then, of course, everyone always blames the cefepime, right? It's always that. And we'll get into a little bit about, because I think I think there's some some details to talk about with that in this study. Um, and then, of course, the pragmatic trial design, which uh, so lucky to have Joanna Stallings literally from the research team come on, talk about this trial design, what went into it, how they were thinking about it, challenges they encountered, where they're going to go with this next, all those things. So that'll be embedded in this discussion. So definitely stay tight there. Now, the ACORN trial or the effect of antibiotic choice on renal outcomes published in JAMA in October 2023, released during ID week. Now, the study group looks familiar 
So Michael, talk a little bit to the listeners about this influential research team, all they've done, because this is just adding to their to, to their contributions to the critical care literature here with this ACORN trial. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a stellar team here. So um, you, of course, got one of the more recognizable names, not only because she's on the pod today, uh, but, you know, Joanna's on the study, a huge PharmD heavy hitter when it comes to being a research clinician. Um, You've also got some pretty recognizable MDs on here. So Wesley Self, um, Matthew Simler and Todd Rice, all pretty recognizable names in the critical care world. Um, but really, this is just another great work product of the Vanderbilt Research Group um, in collaboration with the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group. Um, so you may not recognize that last name, uh, but I guarantee you, you recognize some of the other studies they've produced. Um, things like the Bougie Trial, SMART Trial, SALT and PREPARE, um, all pretty landmark trials when it comes to non-invasive mechanical ventilation and fluid resuscitation, et cetera, um, have all come out of this great collaborative group. And as you can kind of guess by the name, the ultimate goal of this group is really looking at pragmatic research and specifically within the emergency medicine and critical care realms. So um, they kind of have three focuses. Uh, so they're they're really working to inform real world practice with the clinical trials that they're conducting, engaging patients as well as the community and their research efforts, which I think is so important and pretty unique. And then ultimately advancing um, methodologies for how to actually implement the trial results into clinical practice of our everyday lives. Um, so again, just a really great group. They have a really nice website, lots of resources. Um, and things like that, but excited to be talking about another great work product um, from these groups here. Now let's, I'll review the trial methodology, talk a little bit about the study design, um, and then Michael will kind of go into what this trial ultimately found. So the ACORN trial is a pragmatic, single-center, parallel group unblinded prospective randomized trial. So uh, included adult patients either in the emergency department or the medical ICU uh, with a suspected infection less than 12 hours from presentation and the clinician ordered an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam or cephalosporin. So really um, a very wide inclusion criteria. So excluded patients who received more than one dose of an anti-pseudomonal penicillin or cephalosporin within the seven, last seven days. So if they got something like an aminoglycoside or a carbapenem covers pseudomonas, they were still allowed um, and allowed to be included in the trial. Uh, of course, if they had a documented allergy uh, or if the treating clinician feels that a specific agent is indicated, right? Example that came to my mind is maybe they had a history of enterobacter and they want cefepime as their choice. They don't want to get randomized to Zos or Piptazo, for example. So um, then a, a BPA, right, or a best practice advisory fired within the electronic health record for patients who met these criteria. And it essentially prompted the clinician to say, hey, do you does this patient truly meet these inclusion and exclusion criteria? And if so, they randomized them one to one to either an anti-pseudomonal penicillin or cephalosporin. So, like many of our formularies, they had cefepime and piptazo on their formulary. So that essentially turned into what this was a a battle of cefepime and piptazo. Um, patients received a random antibiotic, but all further decisions were left to the discretion of the treating team, right? So how long was it on? De-escalation, right? The escalation, dosing, all those different things was not randomized. It was controlled by the team. Um, and they collected data for seven days post-randomization. So 
I calculated they need a sample size of just over 2,000 patients to meet 80% power. And they did this uh, from, from data when they were trialing this out, which is cool that they were using um, the same patients, the same center to create, you know, the um, template and sample size calculation. And then they actually increased it to 2,500 patients later in the study because only 75% received concurrent vancomycin when I'm sure people thought that it was going to be much, much higher in those initial calculations with combination treatment. Um, intent to treat analysis, uh, they, the goal was to um, complete enrollment and give that first dose within an hour of meeting eligibility criteria. Uh, the primary efficacy outcome was the highest AKI stage or mortality, right, death, 14 days after enrollment. They used the KDGO criteria. Uh, they did some exploratory kind of secondary outcomes from a renal perspective, major adverse kidney events within 14 days, neurologic, uh, coma and delirium-free days, 14 days post-enrollment, and then your classic stuff like ICU-free days, ventilator-free days, vasopressor-free days, those types of things. So ultimately, uh, 2,511 patients were enrolled from November 2021 through October 2022. You heard that correctly. So, uh, Michael, come back in and let us know what these uh, researchers uh, ultimately found, who was enrolled, et cetera, with this study. Absolutely. So we'll kind of dissect some of the results of the study here. And I think we could probably dedicate a whole podcast to just the results section. So I'm going to try and give kind of a high level view of some things, and then we can dive into some more um, in a little bit more detail later on. But um, overall, regarding some of the baseline characteristics, uh, the study enrolled, um, like you said, just a little over 2,500 patients. Um, again, in a super small amount of time, um, all things considered, 95% of those patients were enrolled in the emergency department with the other about 5% enrolled in the intensive care unit. Um, a median time from enrollment to um, receipt of the antibiotic was 1.2 hours. So again, kind of quick, um, a quick administration there. And then 54% uh, of the patients uh, were admitted with sepsis with intra-abdominal and pulmonary being the most common sources there with about 20-25% um, of each. Again, we've got two groups going on here. So 48% of the patients were in the cefepime group and about 52% in the piperacillin and tazobactam group. And kind of dissecting these groups a little bit more, 95% um, received at least one dose of each. So pretty high compliance rate right there. Um, median duration was about three days for both of them. And then there was about an 18% crossover um, in each group. So meaning about 18% in the cefepime group received at least one dose of piperacillin and tazobactam and vice versa. Um, additionally, you know, we're super interested in vancomycin in this study as well. Um, you kind of alluded to that. So about 78% in each group were on vancomycin at the time of enrollment. And then 82% and 80% respectively had at least one dose of vancomycin within the first 14 days. So um, pretty high percentage, in my opinion, if you ask me about uh, vancomycin exposure here. And the median duration for vancomycin was two days. We also kind of got to consider our extended spectrum gram-negative coverage since that was not an exclusion criteria in the study, and that was similar between both groups with about 7% in each. 
looking at some of the other baseline characteristics, again, not going to go through all of these. There was no statistically significant difference um, in any of them, but I do want to call out a few um, just because it's kind of important in the context of the study. Uh, so the, the, so the median SOFA score was about two in both groups and 9% of patients in the cefepime group and 7% of patients in the Piperacil and Tazobactam group were on mechanical ventilation um, at the time of enrollment. Um, transitioning into our primary outcome, again, high stage of AKI or death that was experienced, there was no significant difference uh, in that outcome between the two groups, and they had similar results in the many um, adjusted analyses, uh, sensitivity, and post hoc analyses that were conducted as well, um, as including some that were looking at prolonged exposure. So they did subgroup analysis, or excuse me, sensitivity analyses of um, at least 48 hours, 72 hours, and 96 hours hours of exposure, and again, no significant difference in that primary outcome with uh, either of those uh, groups as well. Looking at our secondary outcomes, um, we have that major adverse kidney event or MAKE that was assessed at 14 days. That was 10.2% in the um, cefepime group versus 8.8% in the Piperacil and Tazobactam group, and that was not statistically significant as well. Looking kind of, you know, at another organ dysfunction that they were wanting to investigate that uh, days alive and free of delirium and coma. Um, that was 11.9 in the cefepime group compared to 12.2 days in the Piperacil and Tazobactam group. And that was statistically significant with an odds ratio of 0.79. So something to kind of keep in mind there. And I think we're going to circle back to uh, towards the end of the study. So that was primary, secondary outcomes. They had several exploratory outcomes as well. Um, mostly no significant difference in those, except interestingly, there was actually a higher rate of need for kidney replacement therapy or KRT at, by day 28 in the cefepime group. So that was 3.9% um, versus 2.3%. So kind of an interesting finding there. Um, so I did want to call that one out. But um, overall, they concluded that there was no increase in acute kidney injury or death with Piperacil and Tazobactam. However, there was a potential increase in neurologic dysfunction um, with cefepime. So I think the first question you have to ask after you, after you hear those results, right? And especially let's start from the kidney perspective. Um, everything turned out, right? Non-significant. So that's all the headlines, right? So I guess the first question is, does this ultimately answer our question about whether each of these agents, cefepime or piptazo, truly cause or definitively causes acute kidney injury? Asking the tough questions, Nick. Um, so I think the answer to that is probably no. It does not give us kind of our ultimate answer um, to this question. And I think that's kind of supported by a recent commentary um, that I think you're also going to circle back and talk a little bit more about. Michael, let's talk about it now because I feel like this editorial is – pretty important to the understanding and application of this study, right? If we're thinking study, supplementary appendix, this feels like right with it as as the combo bundle you need to be reading and understanding. And then talk about a who's who of authors on this amazing editorial. So so what did they what did they talk about? Let's talk about it here. 
Sounds good. Let's do it. Um, so this was a perspective published in Open Forum Infectious Diseases, I believe maybe a month or so ago. I don't exactly remember, but um, like you said, coming from, again, some heavy hitters, Jason Pogue and Samuel Aitken, um, kind of offering their perspective and, and a little bit deeper dive on this study. Um, so again, like we mentioned, you know, the study itself is, is um suggesting that there's no increase in acute kidney injury with the use of piperacillin and tazobactam um, compared to cefepime. Uh, but these authors take a little bit deeper dive into some of the, the supplementary stuff and dissect it a little bit more um, in honestly ways that I never thought to look at it. So they really call attention that if you look at, at some of the trends in um, stages of AKI, especially in um, E-Table 11, if you look at some of those percentages within those stages, there actually is an indicator that with prolonged exposure, so in some of those subgroups of greater than 48, greater than 72, and greater than 96 hours, there are some trends in those percentages that actually do suggest that there is an increased risk of AKI in patients who are receiving piperacillin and tazobactam for some of those longer durations. Um, so I'll definitely want to direct the readers to, to their description because it's much more eloquent than I will ever be able to do. Um, but it offers a pretty cool perspective on this that I honestly didn't really think about the first time that I read the study. And I think it, it definitely brought me back a little bit more to center on kind of your initial question of does this ultimately answer our question today? Yeah, because especially if if you haven't had time to dive into all the details, maybe you, you've you read the abstract, you've seen a couple of headlines, and you, you did the quick once-over of the full text. On the surface, it looks like there's no difference, right? And I think, as always, some of our smarter individuals, where J Jason and Samuel would certainly fall into that category, right? It's probably not always as bad as people say. It's not always as good as they say, right? It's somewhere in the middle and that's what they bring attention to. And then, yeah, I guess we got a shout out. They're both from University of Michigan. They're Michigan men. So good time to be in Ann Arbor now um, after they, they won that national championship. But definitely, um, I would say it brought a pretty good perspective in saying that the, the questions may be not answered. But let's let's talk a little bit more about some of the some of the, the uh, questions or things we want to deep dive within the kidney. Now, one thing I want to I want to be sure to say, this is an unbelievable study. This was truly game-changing in how they were able to do it. The fact that they did this in under a year is incredible. So we're going to talk about some of these things, but don't take these as critiques of the study, of more of just things to consider as we possibly change our thoughts on our on our empiric antibiotic use and how to apply this. So I just want to like big red flag alert that like um, the acorn study is truly a, a tremendous accomplishment and it's going to be used as a model for clinical trials and research moving forward. Um, but just some things to think about. Okay. So that being said, when you look at this study, Michael, this kind of brings the question of incident versus prevalent AKI, uh, meaning AKI at, at baseline versus not. So from, from this trial, which of these patients did they include? Did they include all comers or was it just one specific group of them? Yeah, I think that's a good point to call out. So um, they included all comers here. 
So patients who didn't have AKI on admission as well as patients that did. Um, and that's a big, not, you know, this isn't the first randomized controlled trial we have in this area, but this is another big differentiator is that all of the previous observational and the retrospective studies have largely been just looking at um, incident AKI. So patients who didn't have it on admission and then developed it um, after exposure. Uh, but it kind of brings up an interesting point because I think we all can kind of see in practice, like there's a lot of extrapolation of that data in incident AKI to patients that have prevalent AKI, so already have it on admission. And, you know, we really don't know if that's true or not. So I think, you know, this study helps kind of lend some credence to, you know, there there might not be a difference in, in either of those. Um, so it is kind of a little bit of a unique spin on a question that hasn't really been looked at as much before. And you mentioned um, they looked at baseline creatinine. So it was from 24 hours prior to 12 months pre-enrollment. And then you learn something new every day. They even referenced that if they didn't have one within the last year, essentially, they used what appeared to be a very complicated equation to essentially calculate their baseline serum creatinine. So um, the big thing is duration here. And I think that's going to be another question, right, is so... um, a lot of this, and not a lot of it, all of this was empiric use, right? They had a suspected infection. So ultimately, how long were these agents used? Like, is this something where we're thinking short durations or was this closer to that full seven days? Yeah, I don't think we we're quite there to a full duration of treatment by any means. So definitely looking at that kind of initial empiric stage. So for our beta-lactam antibiotics, so the piperacillin, tazobactam, and the cefepime, the median duration was right around three days in both groups. And then um, for vancomycin, which I believe was the only other drug that they specifically called out, um, with the median duration was about two days. So yeah, again, certainly in my opinion, in that more empiric phase of treatment rather than full duration or definitive phase of treatment. And that kind of calls back to the editorial where that's where they talk about that with longer durations is where they felt that that was kind of the biggest signal um, to some of that, that AKI. And, you know, I think some, some may say this as, as a, as a weakness or limitation, but I want to flip the script a little bit, because think about it, this is all empiric use, right? And so, you know, we really should only be using these agents for 48 to 72 hours. So we're going to talk about like uh, fun facts and like, um, you know, gold medal award winners here, but shout out to the pharmacists who are obviously involved with our de-escalation plans and making sure that these agents, like 48 hours of Vank, right, and only 72 hours of the others, like that was actually, that's kind of impressive and a testament to what they're doing there. Um, Because like you said, do 80% of patients need empiric Vank? Probably not, but look, they got de-escalated at 48 hours. So I think that's, I think that's really great. So just a different way to think about it. Now, when we're looking at that AKI outcome, one of the first things that stood out was it was a 14-day outcome. And if you're familiar with a lot of these ICU studies, 90-day mortality is the only thing we should be looking at, right? Now, let's let's just look at AKI for, for a second. And 14 days versus 90 days, is that a, do we track kidney dysfunction or things up to 90 days? Or is 14 days kind of more of what the literature tells us is, is the appropriate kind of duration? 
So I don't think you're probably going to find an answer to that, um, you know, a definitive one. There's a lot of discussion um, right now about, especially related to renal or kidney-related outcomes, like what is the optimal exposure? Because um, we don't know, you know, based on the the cutoff that we use, which one correlates best with other long-term morbidity, morbid, mortality outcomes. Like we don't really know that right now. Um, so I think, you know, in my opinion, I think the better is probably, you know, for a study like this to not necessarily go shorter, but to assess the the renal or kidney related outcome as close to the exposure window as you can. Um, you know, in my mind, you do a short course of antibiotics for seven days, but look at 90 day acute kidney injury outcome. Well, there's a ton of stuff that's going to happen between, you know, those two windows that's going to confound, you know, especially acute kidney injury. And then also looking at the other safety outcome here of, you know, neurologic outcome, there's so much stuff, especially in the ICU that can happen that is going to be very difficult to control for. So, you know, my kind of thought process is, you know, trying to assess that AKI outcome or renal related outcome as close as you can or shortly after that kind of exposure window that you're looking at. So if it is, you know, exposure to bank and paper cell and days of back for 90 days, maybe do that. But also like patients shouldn't be on those for 90 days. So, um, you know, that's kind of my take, my take on that there. And I'm not sure if we'll, you know, have an answer that's very definitive anytime soon. Um, that's certainly an evolving area, especially within the the nephrology world. That's a really good. That's a really good breakdown. The only other thing that entered my mind was follow up, right? Fourteen day chances that you're going to be able to stay in touch and and either have labs or those other things, or they're still going to be in the hospital way higher than ninety days, right? You're oh, yeah. a researcher, I'm sure. From that perspective, we would have much more. Um, loss to follow up and and missing results if we did the the ninety um, versus fourteen. So the other thing with that, as we're talking about that uh, primary outcome, is um, it was essentially a composite outcome, right? Where it was AKI uh, KDGO stages, the highest stage in fourteen days, um, and mortality. So using that and then kind of asking as well, looking at a, like a safety versus efficacy analysis. Is there any, if we had to do this trial over again, is there anything that we might change with that primary outcome, maybe including death? What if it was just AKI? Would we have seen a difference? Um, that was kind of my biggest question with it, especially in a 14 day period. Right. Yeah. Um, I'll kind of turf the discussion on the efficacy outcome back to you, but I think as far as that, the, the outcome they selected goes, like, I thought it was a pretty good one. Um, you know, it, it, it was a good approach at accounting for death as a competing event. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about not necessarily novel, but maybe more optimal outcomes in critical care research. And, you know, this kind of outcome is what we would call a hierarchical outcome. You know, you, you prioritize things in a hierarchical manner. So they have their spectrum of, you know, assigning a value of zero through four based on the different outcomes. So I think it was a good way to, to account for account for death again, as a competing, um, competing event. And it is a little bit of a riff on, um, I don't know if you've heard of, or we talked about it earlier, I guess the make outcomes, so that major adverse kidney event, which is, you know, acute kidney injury, death, or, um, or sorry, is need for renal replacement therapy, death, um, or, um, 
reduction in um, kidney function from baseline. So um, which that in itself is kind of being a not necessarily more recommended, but maybe a more favored kind of more patient specific outcome in nephrology related research, as opposed to just blatant mortality or um, simple like acute kidney injury and things like that. So I think it's a good uh, good outcome altogether to, to take a look at. But of course, because it does encompass acute kidney injury, it's gonna be subject to some of the limitations that are well known as far as you know, not having, you know, the study didn't have urine output to document as far as AKI staging, serum creatinine, you know, you can't talk about AKI without talking about how bad serum creatinine is and giving it a little bit of a bad rap. So of course, it's going to be subject to those things. But as far as what's available to us, what was available to them right now, um, I think it was a pretty good outcome to select. And I think that's that pragmatic trial design, right? Like, of course, would we be like to have urine output? Yes. But how many patients, I'll tell you what, if you're in the ER for 12 hours, I think you could count on two hands the amount of people that are going to have urine output documented, right? Exactly. And, yeah. um, you know, not everywhere has like cystatin C, for example, like the, you know, some would say a, a more accurate predictor of, of your renal function. And so I think there are limitations, but going back to if we're trying to make the best fit line of how people do this in practice, this is probably the most accurate in terms of all inclusion of, of what's done in all the different hospitals, not necessarily, you know, our benchmark for research per se. So I see both sides, right? I think you just have to know there's limitations, but knowing that we deal with those limitations in practice. And, you know, that, you know, you mentioned the, you'll kick it to me. I kind of think from a, the reason they did this trial is because the argument is, is that there's, they have similar efficacy, right? And that's why you were just looking at the safety component, because if there was true differences in efficacy, you would monitor your kidney function and start the better antibiotic, right? And that was the whole argument against it, um, was it's not the, they could waive informed consent and those types of things because the understanding and previous literature, observational or not, has shown that there is no difference in efficacy. The outcomes are the same if you're doing it for empiric use, right? It's non-targeted. And that's the other thing, empiric versus targeted treatment. Only 29% of them had a positive culture. Now we know, okay, we know, you know, culture negative sepsis or those things happen in a third of patients, right? But you know, you mentioned only about a half of them met the sepsis three criteria, right? And that's where you get an empiric versus targeted treatment. And if these were all patients with true infections, would we have seen something, you know, it, it's hard to know, but I think that's something to at least talk about is, um, you know, this was patient was showing sepsis signs, 90% of them, 95% in the ER, they got thrown some antibiotics, started on this, et cetera, et cetera. So unclear what it would be different if, these were patients that had true infections, um, that type of thing. You know, how does how does that affect your interpretation with it all being empiric use? Yeah, I think um, I think you're absolutely right. You make a good point because you know if you think about it, um, the presence of infection or true infection, and even the type of infection, so the site of infection, the pathogen you're growing is probably going to affect disease severity, which is probably going to affect rates of acute kidney injury, which is probably going to affect mortality rates, which is all the outcomes that they looked at. So um, I think, you know, that commentary that I mentioned earlier and talked about earlier does a fantastic job of laying out kind of thinking through that process, but it certainly is 
um, is and needs to be part of the question and consideration as far as the the interpretation of these results. Yeah, this is, you know, um, you know, when you talk about how sick or critically ill these patients were, you hit on the three big baseline characteristics that stood out to me, median SOFA of two, about 13% on vasopressors and less than 10% ventilated, right? Median lactate 1.6, 1.6, Right. So how sick or critically ill were these patients? Right. And again, how would that affect if they were in septic shock versus suspected infection? How would this change? You know. 100 percent. And I mean, you hit on kind of those were also the big baseline characteristics that stood out to me. I don't think it's overly surprising, though. Right. There was a low percentage that were admitted or excuse me, enrolled as part as being in the ICU. Um, and then they were also only looking at one specific ICU, so the medical ICU. So I wasn't overly surprised to see a low representation of critically ill patients. You know, it wasn't the focus of the study. Yep. Um, but I do think it's important to think about because it is, for me, very difficult to clearly or directly apply this data to the critically ill patient because of so many of the other confounding aspects that can affect renal function, neurologic function, other outcomes, um, and things like that. So I don't think it's a, you know, blanket application like some of the other studies that we can talk about, um, on a daily basis in practice are. Yeah. And, you know, say, say you are, let's, you will put, put our thoughts aside and say, maybe you are a believer that's happening in the critically ill. I don't think you can apply this to your surgical ICU patients, right? Or anything like that, right? Um, I would say a stretch to apply to all medically critically ill patients, but I don't definitely don't think you can put it into those other patient populations as well, just because A, it was only ED and um, medical ICU and over nine, like 90 to 95% of them were enrolled in the ED from this. So um, what, when they compared um, the two groups, right? Cause the other big question is, all right, tons of other medications can, can cause some of these issues of nephro or neurotoxicity. So was there any difference between those groups? Did they talk about other medications and any difference in groups, maybe in, you know, who received medications that could be bad to either the kidney or your brain? Um, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they had a lot of that information in the supplemental, um, and there was no difference in any of those. So there, I believe there's a table that was like neurotoxic and um, nephrotoxic medications, and they had a nice little list of what they considered. There's no significant difference between groups there. Um, and then I, you know, we've already talked about vasopressors. They called those out again, no difference. And then they also called out. Um, the specific analogous sedation regimens that groups were receiving or not regimens, but agents. And again, um, no difference there. And now to bring that up, I do also have to give them a shout out again. Uh, based on those numbers, looked like fantastic um, application of the PADIS guidelines. Not surprised at all, considering the group that's doing that's this. That's exactly um, right. But, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but yeah, again, no difference there. So, I, you know, I think they did a good job controlling for those types of potential confounders. Yeah. For, for as much as you may hear, you know, other people and, and potentially us pick apart things that we might like to see, there was an incredible number of things that were collected and calculated. So yeah, Michael, you hit the nail on the head. E table five shows you and, and they tell you not only which agents they included um, as ones that could impact it, but also essentially the exact same for both groups. Um, I was a little more surprised that patients got more neurologic 
affecting medications than nephrotoxic. Um, I'm sure if, if I dug through, you would it would make some sense. But I was I was a little surprised. Now, as we get into that neurologic discussion here, my other big big question is. I saw when this got released, there were a lot of tweets or headlines that was like, no difference in AKI, cefepime increases neurotoxicity. So then you just saw these hot takes of, I'm never using cefepime as, as, as my empiric agent ever. And we'll talk about final thoughts and things. But, you know, do we think that the, this neurologic outcome is, is truly clinically meaningful? Is this something that you know, should we be following that and really limiting our use or are there things that we should consider with this finding? You know, I think it's, I think it's just a consideration. Um, when you look at the, the data that is presented, I believe it was like 11.9 delirium and coma free days versus 12.3. So really, you know, less than one day true difference between the two groups. It was statistically significant, but to me, that's not something that I I feel like I can clinically act on, you know, so I definitely saw those headlines being made. I'm not sure, you know, I'm in that super strong camp of, you know, never use cepapine, but um, I think it, it definitely doesn't say it's not neurologic. Uh, you know, neurologically toxic. Um, but I definitely don't think, you know, we're definitively saying that it is and it shouldn't, shouldn't be used. And I think when you, one of the things with antibiotic studies, and I, I always try, I feel like this is something that, that us pharmacists have a very keen eye on, but I feel like it kind of falls from the wayside of, of almost everyone else's. The dosing of these is so important because we know how that can actually influence things like adverse effects. And so here, right, the um, this group, they did what, what I'd call the classic extended interval or the, or the more contemporary um, extended interval piptazo dosing, which is they gave a 30-minute bolus dose, and then four hours later, they started that eight-hour, um, every eight-hour, four-hour infusion. But the cefepime was given two grams IV push over five minutes every eight hours, and then kind of renally adjusted. They, they um, have the table that shows the differences I think that's important because my argument would be if you're giving an IV push, you're going to be more likely to have a neurologic finding than if you were giving that over even just inner, even if just 30 minutes, let alone if you were doing the four hours. So that's my only, that's my only thought of caution is would we have still seen this if this was a gram every 30, you know, over 30 minutes, every eight hours or things hard to know. That's my, that's my thoughts. How do you think the dosing impacted? Like, did you have the same like thinking, or do you think maybe not that maybe I'm just on a, on a limb there? No, I think I'm, I'm on the same page with you there for sure. Um, you, you know, there is data with different dosing strategies for beta lactams, but as well as vancomycin um, regarding kidney related outcomes, you know, there's data out there that says that continuous infusion vanc can result in lower um, incidence of acute kidney injury and things like that. So I think dosing is 100% and should be um, part of the discussion and consideration here. Um, and maybe kind of previewing a little bit what we're going to talk about, but probably needs to be part of future directions kind of in this area of clinical research. That's kind of the perfect lead in, you know, where do we go from here? Um, and I think there's kind of, I think there's two questions. I think there's kind of two parts to this. Where do we go from here with our question of antibiotic associated AKI? And then where do we go from here with this trial design? 
and, and all the things like, how is this going to be? So I think my first question is, we've kind of said maybe the answer, we haven't definitively answered that antibiotic associated AKI question. Is there something on the horizon or things that we should be looking for? Or is this kind of the start to, you know, we might see our arise process promise, right? The three sepsis trials. Are we going to see a lot more of those looking at this exact question to try to definitively answer it? You know, I don't know if I can say we're going to see a lot. Um, I think people are maybe certainly starting to get a little burnout on, on this topic. Um, but I do think there's, you know, there's a couple other questions. You know, we just mentioned dosing matters, um, and it's pretty unclear, especially within the combination therapy realm, what impact dosing has. Does it impact? How does it impact? Things like that. So that's probably something that, you know, if, if something's going to be carried out, looking at that or getting some granular data um, from that perspective would be good. And then really the other one we've, we've certainly talked about too is those longer durations. That's still really unclear. Um, and then not just longer durations, but longer durations with confirmed infections is going to be important too. And then, um, you know, we didn't talk about this much earlier, but I just wanted to throw out that uh, it's important for readers to keep in mind that the concomitant administration was not – um, exactly laid out at a granular level here. So it, it was not clearly reported that patients were on on both vancomycin and cefepime or on both cefepime, um, and uh, vancomycin at the same time. They kind of reported it in cumulative doses over a duration of time. So it's, it's hard to tell where those durations of time overlapping. Um, and then that's really the important question there, particularly for some of those longer duration studies that would probably be of interest. Um, do you have any other thoughts kind of in that, that realm? I'm actually going to cut that part, that last question, because I'm going to lead into Joey and us here. So I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so let's bring in, um, the true expert talking about, uh, this pragmatic trial design and all that went into it. So, uh, Michael, hang tight. We're going to bring Joanna here, talk a little bit about the study, answer some of these things. So we'll be right back. This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. And welcome back, special guest, such a good friend of the pod, Joanna Stallings, a medical ICU clinical pharmacy specialist at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, Uh, also involved with the Post-ICU Recovery Center and the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group. Thanks so much for making time, Joanna. How are you doing down in Tennessee? You thawing out and everything okay? Yeah, thanks, Nick, for inviting me to be um, here today. This is so fun. It's always nice chatting with you. Yeah, we we Tennesseans don't get a lot of snow, so when we get six inches, the whole city shuts down. So it's been a crazy last day and a half. So uh, one of the the biggest takeaways, right, from the Acorn trial is the groundbreaking design itself. Let's dive into that a little bit. So, how did your group, right, the the Vanderbilt Center for Learning Healthcare and the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group. How did you all come up with the idea of using the electronic health record to enroll and randomize patients? Well, I mean, honestly, we've done this before. 
you know? So um, I think the really the first time that we did this was the SMART study, which we published um, in the New England Journal in 2018. Um, so this was a study that looked at balanced fluids compared to saline that showed um, a reduction in like make 30, so major adverse kidney events at 30 days if you use balanced fluids. And so we actually, this was before we had converted to EPIC, um, but that was the first time that we really had used the electronic health um, record to enroll patients. And so um, whatever you want to call it, like a BPA, that's what we call it in EPIC. But mm -hmm. uh, um, in our former medical record system, then like you honestly wouldn't even know that like a trial was going on when this was happening, unless you tried to order the wrong fluid, <laughs> ironically <laughs> enough. So in other words, like saline, when it was a saline month, there were no exclusions. Um, but if it was, if you tried to L order like LR, um, it would yell at you and be like, there's a trial going on, blah, 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 blah. And then with LR, like um, same thing, like if you tried to like, order saline in this patient, you could have gotten out of it if somebody had a traumatic brain injury or if they had hyperkalemia, because we didn't know at the time that um, that w did have some equities at that time, whether which fluid you should use in that situation. But anyways, I tell you all this because it worked so well, right? Like um, the SMART study, um, I'm a little biased, um, <laughs> but it was a, a great study, but it really just was like um, our research groups kind of like launch into the pragmatic um, critical care like trials um, area. And um, it just showed you that like you're going along like doing your everyday thing and like people don't even realize like that a study is going on unless they try to order like the other intervention in that situation. Why do you think... Because hand up, I'm not sure I realized that you all use the EHR like in that trial and in other trials. How, why do you think why do you think this got so much, I guess you'd say publicity in a sense, despite it not being the first one that you've done? Was it the beautiful screenshot? I don't know. What do you think it is? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a few things, right? Like we had like a homegrown, um, like electronic, like medical record, like system, you know? And so this, like everybody has Epic, right? For the most part, most people have either Epic or Cerner at this point. So I think that's part of it. Honestly, it's, it's so relatable as people were probably like, Hey, I have Epic at my institution. Like I could do this too. So that's probably why and um, it was probably, like you said, probably familiar with them when they saw like a screenshot of what the BPA or best practice advisor, if somebody's not familiar with Epic, like look like, um, then that's probably why. Um, and I think honestly, just the idea of the trial too, um, was why this got so much press, um, is the second part. So how, how involved are you or, you know, the research group in general with the IT side of things? Do you have like an IT representative? Like how, how do you get things? Cause I think sometimes us, you know, I have, I have Cerner where I work and, but I think I can speak for Epic. Sometimes it can feel like if you want to make some of these big changes or things, you need six, nine, 12 months. And this was like a really quick turnaround. So how involved are you to be able to like make that stuff happen? Well, so the lead author um, on, or the first author, I should say, of the study is Eddie M. Chen. So Eddie, um, so he did, um, I've known Eddie for a long time. So he did his medicine resident at Vanderbilt, and he also did his fellowship. But he, and we never had this happen before, actually, did an additional year of training um, post-fellowship and specifically focusing on healthcare informatics. So Eddie is our, like, IT guru. So he's the one that really worked on building like the, the BPA and such. Um, so that's 
um, honestly, yeah, we have like a firsthand like assistance really um, with regards to that because um, this was, he was the lead author on this study and he was the mastermind really behind um, a lot of the IT aspects of this study. So you're saying it's easy. Just get yourself an Eddie and then that's all you need, right? (laughs) (laughs) Don't try to steal him. No one's taking Eddie. (laughs) So was it a was it a fight to get the waiver of informed consent with the IRB or how did that all work? Because obviously that was important to being able to truly implement and randomize and enroll so many patients so quickly. I mean, no, honestly, it wasn't. And once again, like that's kind of like the the bread and butter, for lack of a better phrase, like of our um, research group, right, is um, you want to find um, questions and you want to find things that like uh, a lot of times don't need like that you have to have like informed consent for. And like how you do that is you find something that's minimal risk and you find something that's essentially like an emergency intervention. And we know, right, like I don't need to say this, that like every hour you delay antibiotics, there's an 8% increase in mortality. So antibiotics are an emergency and this is everyday care, right? Like how much Zosin and Cefepime do we hand out? A lot. Mm -hmm. Like that is not like considered to be like a high risk intervention. And, you know, you mentioned the, this is your group's bread and butter, right? You, you know, NS versus LR, dexmedetomidine versus propofol, right? And now, of course, we have cefepime versus piptazo. So just showing you got, you all truly do, right? Because those are things that you would argue equal, you know, equipose one way studying something on the other side. So I, in the supplementary appendix, I believe it referenced like a trial period with the alert, right? And how you calculate sample size and all those things. So during that trial, did anything happen that you all maybe weren't expecting good, bad, indifferent? Like did, did any bumps in the road happen during the trial period or was it mainly smooth sailing? I mean, honestly, it was really smooth sailing. Like if you've seen the um, BPA and like, obviously I work in the MICU every single day. So I saw this thing and like to work with medicine residents who hadn't really seen this thing before every single day. And so essentially all that happened was they either were like, we're on rounds and they're like, either going to order cefepime or zosin and they do that and that prompts this bpa to come up and it's very simple all it says essentially is like are you an adult like or is the patient I should say, an adult more than 18 years of age um is the patient a prisoner has the patient had antibiotics within the um, last seven days and does the patient like have a compelling indication for example maybe meningitis they would have to give we'd want to give cefepime not zosin um for one or the other and if the answer was no then it randomized them and told them what the patient should receive, either the Zosin um, or the Cefepime. So yeah, every now and then I would get questions about it. Um, but to be honest, like um, it was just, it was very easy, you know? Um, and obviously Eddie is in the background, like looking at all of this as people were ordering things. So if he did see someone who um, they changed, like they opted out of the study, you know, or a few days in, we like changed the antibiotics. He would quite often reach out to me and be like, what is the story? What's going on? So I would help with that, you know, like quite a bit too. Um, but yeah, I think like, um, people were just as curious as I was with regards to the answer to this question. So I think everybody was very excited and happy to participate in this study. At what point could you like recite the whole BPA, like just by memory without having to look at it? Cause I'm guessing <laughs> you saw that thing fire at least in the triple digits, right? Throughout this period, if not more. Yeah. I mean, I saw it fire a lot, so it didn't take very long, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, for, for us to, um, for me to be able to like recite the whole BPA like by heart. <laughs> um, so 
obviously we're, we can't steal Eddie. I wish the listeners could have seen Joanna's face when she, when she said that she meant it, she meant business 100%. But is there any advice? Cause you mentioned this is something that, that you all have kind of done and maybe perfected is the wrong way, but this is really something you're comfortable with. What advice would you have for others who I think this is going to become look to become more commonplace of people trying to do a trial design similar to this of using the EHR, what kind of general advice could you give to those based on your experience? I mean, I think the biggest thing is kind of what we chatted about is that you have to pick an intervention that's minimal risk and you also have to pick something that's like um, essentially like an emergency if you're going to go without like informed consent, you know. And so I think that's the biggest part. Obviously, like make friends with your IT department <laughs> um, so that you can be like readily involved with like designing the BPA, changes to the BPA as things come along, um, et cetera. Well, Thanks for joining and talking a little bit, a little bit about this. And then of course, right. For contributing, what an awesome, awesome piece of research. You'd argue probably uh, top five studies of 2023, right. In terms of not only some of its findings, but just how this design might be taken into other things. So uh, kudos to you. Always enjoy when you come back on Joanna. Thank you so much. Listeners at Joanna CC farm D. If you want to reach out to her on, on Twitter um, and interact with her. Thanks so much, Joanna. Thank you, Nick. All right, Michael. So after that discussion, I feel like one of my biggest thoughts that I went with is what are other study ideas that could benefit from this pragmatic trial design? What are some what are some questions that could be answered? Because to me, the two things that instantly came to my mind is if you need antifungal coverage, does it have to be in a kind of candon or could it be an azole antifungal? So I feel like that could be just like in this trial, that feels like something you could do. The other was double coverage with an aminoglycoside in septic shock, right? Because I think the argument would be it hasn't definitively shown. So those two things came to my mind. But off the top of your head, is there anything that you can think of that might benefit? Like I'm wondering, like, you know, a second line vasopressor study, for example, although that might, that might be challenging, but I'm trying to think of other things. Cause this is not gonna be the last time we see this type of study. I mean, I hope it's not the last time just because <laughs> it's such a, I mean, it's such a great design. You know, honestly, I was thinking about the, the empiric antifungal coverage as well. Um, but there wasn't really, you know, any other ones that came kind of screaming out of the page at me. I think just the big thing you kind of have to think about is probably, you know, one of the big reasons this was such a successful study is because of the, I guess, equipoise, if you will, between the two treatments. And that allows you to circumvent, you know, informed consent and things like that. And so, you know, just kind of keeping that in mind with the questions you're asking is really, I think, what would allow people to apply this type of design to a research question in, in the best manner. Um, so I don't know, I'll have to think a little bit more and maybe get back to you on that. But I'm sure there's still some good questions that could be answered with this design out there. Um, let's kind of get into fun facts, notable fun things to point out from the study. Again, hinted at this, but just incredible de-escalation numbers, right? Shout out to all the Vanderbilt pharmacists. They even get a shout out all that they, all the pharmacists do in the supplementary appendix. Um, so I thought that was really great. Um, you got, you know, we hit on Joanna Stallings, pharmacist author, just joined um, highlighting her. She's great. And then of course, uh, when you look in 
the supplementary material, non-author PharmD contributor, Autumn Zuckerman. I hope I pronounced that last name correctly. So shout out the two pharmacists. I mean, time to treatment, just over one hour, right? One hour and 12 minutes. Took less than a year to complete. Randomized over two-thirds of the eligible participants, which is just amazing when you look at some of the previous ID studies, like even the Mercy trial and how many patients got excluded or how much smaller the numbers were. Um, So just kudos, kudos, all the things like um, when you look in the supplementary appendix, they have so many labs listed. It really looks like the first day you have a student on rotation with you in the ICU and they write down every single number that is in that chart. That's what they did. They, they tracked so much. So what a testament to the data and research team. You know, Michael highlighted them in the beginning, but definitely have to shout out all they've done. And this is, you know, they are, they are no slouch. They are MVPs in this, uh, you know, clinical trial research world, you know, hitting on all the, and this is another great for power ranking their study names. Acorn's probably number one for me. Um, but I love, you know, you know, it's important when they have a, a trial acronym. So fun facts all around as we end and kind of go into our take home points. I feel like we have to ask, are you team Cefepim or team Piptazo? And did this trial change your allegiance at all? Because I feel like people feel very strongly one way or another. And I'll give you, I'll give you my answer, but I'm gonna have you go first. Hmm. I think, you know, if I had to give you just one broad answer, I'm probably team whatever we can get to the patient first. Um, if we're being honest, because that's what I mean, time to antibiotics, which that, you know, that's what's going to be be important here. Um, I don't think, you know, this like truly sways me one way or the other. You know, I think it what it tells me is that there's, you know, up to 48 hours. We're probably, you know, I can probably argue a little bit more against the Piperacil and Tazobactam vancomycin combination AKI business. Um, after that, I don't feel as confident arguing. Um, but you know, I'm trying to think of like the clinical scenarios where I would literally argue against doing that and doing cefepim, and they're pretty few and far between. Um, I think my biggest pet peeve is we just need to pick something and stick with it initially, like this switching back and forth, going from cefepim to piptazo or piptazo to cefepim, whatever. To me, I kind of can't help but wonder: does multiple beta lactam exposure have a greater detrimental impact on resistance, things of that nature, than the potential risk for acute kidney injury or the potential risk of neurologic toxicity. So I think that was a long-winded answer for a rather simple question, but I think your question actually did not end up being as simple as you hoped it would be. I don't think it's a simple question. We did not plan this ahead of time, but you make your point leads into mine in that I don't think you should have a favorite. Like, I think that's what this argument makes. Maybe that's a hot take, but I think you should, each patient should have their antibiotics considered. Like to me, the 20% of patients, right, that got switched, you know what I think probably happens? The ER started cefepime and this person insisted for no reason that they start piptazo and that's what happened. I see it all the time. I agree. That is frustrating to me. Like if you're, like the idea that every septic patient gets piptazo or gets cefepime. Like, I think that idea is absurd, but there are people that truly like practice that way, I think. So 
I'm kind of on your side. You just need to be thoughtful with it. And I also, we don't know what switching does. I think that's a huge question in the ID sepsis world. What does happen if you get one to two doses or even one day and switch to something else? How does that affect your resistance or things like that? Um, really good point. So I'd be, be curious, listeners, let me know what, what you all think. But final thoughts, Michael, as we talk about this ACORN trial published in JAMA, What's your big takeaway? What's your elevator speech when you kind of think about this trial and what do you think is kind of the, your big takeaway or thoughts from it? Yeah, I think maybe I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I think it's, you know, I'm comfortable up to 48 hours. I don't think it cares. Let's get the patient the, the medication they need based on patient-specific factors, what we have quick access to, what is our suspected source, suspected pathogens, et cetera. After that, though, I think, you know, we definitely have to consider after that 48 hours, you know, we still don't really have the the firm data that says, you know, vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam doesn't cause increased risk of acute kidney injury. We don't have that um, with this this study here. So I, I wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, using this data to apply that to your, I don't know, some polymicrobial osteomyelitis or something like that. And like we also talked about earlier, I'm not sure we can uh, definitively apply this data to every critically ill patient. And I think we still have to be a little cautious with applying it to our medically critically ill patients as well, just because of the um, low representation of the study. What about you? It, extremely well said. That's my thoughts. Exactly. I, I think that it gives me comfort. This was kind of my thoughts on the short empiric use that they're probably no so. So I like that, but I think it's one of those. My biggest takeaway is I hope this trial. I hope this trial design becomes implemented and integrated into our critical care research because, um, as you know, if we're able to get this research turned out quicker, like this is obviously we're going to be able to answer a lot more questions in a timely fashion that improves care, helps our understanding of guidelines, disease states, all those things. So um, what a step in the right direction and what an, what an unbelievable, I'm going to be honest, it's got to be a top three trial of 2023. You know, we'll have to go through them, but this is definitely feels like one of the most uh, impactful talked about. Um, so really, really well done. Shout out to everyone at Vanderbilt and also Shout out Michael, returning guest. Appreciate you coming on for the Rapid Reaction episode. Uh, folks, if you're still on Twitter or X, reach out to Michael at MLB underscore farm D. Uh, let him know what an awesome job he did, ask questions, etc. And another huge thanks, of course, to uh, Joanna for not only her incredible research, but for taking a few minutes out of her day to come and educate us about uh, everything with the trial. That was awesome. So thanks again, Michael. Appreciate you. Thanks, Nick. Have a good one. Another huge thanks to uh, Michael and Joanna, and of course, thanks to Kiazi, uh, official partner of the pod. Uh, reference list is in that episode description, as well as the website pharmacytodose.com. Uh, check out some of the social medias. Trial of the Day videos are back, sharing some fun things there. So at Pharmacy to Dose on things like Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, etc. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.